So it starts in Rebecca's womb. She's carrying twins, and they're already fighting. She asks God for help. Take them out or kill me. And instead, God gives her a prophecy. Ah, two nations are in her womb, and they'll fight all their lives. One will always be stronger than the other, and the one born first will always come second. So somehow, Rebecca survives the pregnancy and gives birth. Esau comes first. But Jacob is determined to make sure his brother isn't first by much. He comes out holding on to Esau's heel. So Jacob is called Jacob, which means he takes by the heel. It also means he pushes his way into first place. He won't carry that name his whole life, but his character never improves. Esau, nicknamed Red for the usual reasons, grows up to love life, the great outdoors, and his father loves the stories Esau tells about hunting and hiking and climbing. Esau whistles a happy tune around camp. Jacob stays close to home and Rebecca. He watches the world go by and he learns a lot about how it works. People say Jacob's smart and Esau's simple but good. And as the boys grow into men, Jacob watches for an opportunity to take from Esau what God told his mother belonged to him after all. And Jacob one day takes advantage of Esau's delight in the moment, his desire for instant gratification. Esau comes home hungry. I'm going to die, I'm so hungry. Everything is the end of the world for Esau until he gets some food in his stomach or lays his head down for a while. And he sees Jacob stirring a bowl of red lentil stew. It's Esau's favorite, Rebecca's recipe. And Jacob fills a bowl and offers it to his brother for a price. Esau trades his birthright, his inheritance as a firstborn, for a hot lunch. And maybe Esau thinks it's a joke, but Jacob plays jokes, but he never jokes. And maybe Esau will be able to turn things around. We'll see. The episodes we heard this morning pick up the story where Isaac knows death is coming soon, and a father must bless his sons before he dies, starting with the firstborn. But Isaac wants to eat from Esau's hand first. Esau's a good hunter, and he grills a great goat. So he does what his father says. He goes off, and Rebekah's listening. Isaac's eyesight is almost gone, but his hearing is as good as it ever was. Isaac's puzzled by what he hears. It's Jacob's voice, but he trusts his fingers and his nose. He has always loved Esau's hug and kiss at the end of the day. And Jacob smells and feels just like his brother through Rebekah's ingenuity and Jacob's disguise. So Jacob gets the blessing. After all, Rebekah was, was told, God said, 
that Jacob would always come first by hook or by crook. Those last words are Rebecca's. Esau comes back, finds out what happened. Isaac can't take his blessing back any more than Esau can take his own words back. Blessings and oaths are more binding to all parties, including God, than any contract or will, sacred, signed, and sealed. So when we meet Jacob in the last part of our reading, he's on the road, sent off to the old country to find a wife, leaving Esau behind, trying to deal with his new status and please his parents as the second son. You know, anytime I hear a Christian crow about biblical marriage and family values, I have to ask, which marriage, which family, and are we reading the same Bible? Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and his sons, Sarah and Abraham, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob, Jacob and his brother, Jacob and his wives, Jacob and his father-in-law, and Jacob's sons, and on through the Old Testament. For Jews, they are the founders of the nation, the parents of the people. And for Christians, they're fathers and mothers of the faith. And some of them are held up in the New Testament as examples and saints. And if we allow that ideas about family and marriage were different in the times Bible stories are set in and when they were written down, different from what we know and believe now, we still have to agree that all of these supposed proposed heroes and heroines were deeply flawed individuals, and that's putting it mildly. Their faith, their trust in God, comes and goes with the wind. God keeps making promises to them, and they keep on losing patience, taking things into their own hands, sometimes with horrible consequences. Remember how Sarah uses Hagar and what Sarah's daughter-in-law, Rebekah, does because God promises but clearly takes too much time to act on the promises. God is faithful, and sometimes God has to clean up the messes God's chosen people make. And in today's reading, Jacob has a dream. Like grandfather Abraham, on the road, unsettled in sleep, and the dream ends in a blessing, the same blessing and promise that Abraham got in even more detail. But first, there's the ladder. Actually better to translate it as a ramp, but to sing, we are climbing Jacob's ramp, just doesn't ring the same way. But like on the side of an old Canaanite temple, they were like pyramids, but stepped, but many had ramps, wide ramps, so that offerings could be taken up to the top by the priests, and so that if the gods willed, the gods could send gifts or bring themselves down the ramp. So think maybe of a, a pyramid with its top breaking through the clouds. Angels go up, angels come down. God's messengers on earth and God's messengers in the air. So what does it mean? Well, I think in the promise we can find some help. As long as Isaac remembers the vision, he will know God is with him, watching, listening. The angels go up, and God will speak and keep on speaking. The angels come down. It's an image of constant two-way 
communication. So Jacob makes a vow to God, a bargain, really. Look after me, and I'll call you my God. And remember, this God is still new to Abraham's family. Is Jacob worthy of such a vision? Is Jacob worthy of the promise? I mean, what right does Jacob have to bargain with God? And will God, should God listen to someone like Jacob? Centuries after the days of Jacob and his parents and his grandparents and his children, the storytellers who gathered together the stories of Genesis have a purpose. It's a theological purpose to remind their generation and generations to follow that being who they are, Jacob's descendants, has nothing to do with them, their worthiness, their innate goodness, their presumed privilege, nothing. It's all God's doing and God's free choice. And God can choose whom God will choose. It seems we keep coming back to that six-word summary of the entire Bible. I am God, you are not. God is free to choose anyone to bless and call to serve, to employ to do God's will in the world, anyone. And the Genesis stories and, and so many others, they were told for generations before they were written down, told and heard with humor, irony, amazement, exaggeration for effect, laughter and tears, and often very surprising endings and not simply to entertain, but to make the stories easy to remember in detail. We, we don't get that when we read them aloud from, from the page of the Bible. We also don't realize how accurate the repetition of those stories was because they're so memorable. Jacob is a memorable character. Jacob, the survivor. Jacob, the liar. Jacob, the swindler, Jacob the wrestler, Jacob who has to accept the consequences of his crooked ways every day into his old age. And yet he survives, but only because God chooses to be with him. We can't forget Jacob. And in his 90s, Jacob gets a new name. God calls him Israel. And the name has more than one meaning. It means he wrestles with God. It also means God wins. And it can also be a prayer. May God win. Now, we know horrible things happen in this world of ours when people of any religion get up and shout, God wins, which means, of course, our God wins, or my God and I win. But what if it can mean God wins so you and I don't have to fight anymore? God doesn't need me or you to fight on God's behalf. God is okay. Besides, we have enough on our hands wrestling with God because being faithful is often a struggle, especially when God's will for us isn't clear and when answers to prayer don't come, at least not on our schedule. When circumstances make us cry out, why God, why? Even when we do get the message but don't like it, contending, wrestling with God. For Christians, Abraham's family, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and his family, are fathers and mothers of the faith. And from the beginning of the church, 
the church has dared to lay a spiritual claim to the name Israel. That doesn't mean we take it away from our Jewish neighbors. It does mean we believe we are children of the same God, also called to serve God and to do God's will in the world. The original Israel story, especially when he was still called Jacob, reminds us that it doesn't matter to God that we're not perfect, prone to making big mistakes, not always faithful, more often forgetful. Yes, we are as likely to hug as to fight, but we're also as likely to shun as to welcome. We get our priorities out of order at times, and sometimes we act as if we know a lot more of God's truth than we do, and it's up to us to defend God and contend for God. Scripture says that this breaks God's heart, but it doesn't stop God loving us. It doesn't cancel God's promise to be faithful to us, always and forever. It doesn't change God's plan to work through us to change the world and to carry out God's mission to spread love all over the world. In the old, old stories, Genesis tells us, God doesn't expect us to be passive, to sit still and wait for heaven, or for God to tell us exactly what to do, whichever comes first. God chooses to work through active, creative, sometimes even crafty people who know their own limits or discover them the hard way, but don't stop. Maybe God enjoys watching churches that are feisty, even ornery at times, for good reason, not afraid to ask tough questions, and never claiming certainty except when it comes to God's faithfulness. Remember Jacob's dream, the stairway to and from heaven. God doesn't just watch from afar. Surely God is in this place, here with us, whether we know it or not. Amen. Glory to God.